There's Gene. All right. Well, everyone, you know what? I'll begin uh, by opening up with prayer. So we'll get started as soon as we can here. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you for our time together to study more about your word. And we do pray, Lord, as we look into this chapter 18 of Revelation, we'd remember that life without you is unsustainable, that we were created to worship you and to govern as vice-regents, not co-regents. And so, Lord, we pray that you would instill within us the, the lessons that we have to learn from this text. We pray, Lord, that you would help it use this text to sustain us in these dark days and to trust your promises. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, dear ones, we're getting on now into Revelation chapter 18. I can't believe it. Now, remember when we get to Revelation 19... In verse 11, Jesus Christ comes at the end of the 70th week. So we're really getting there. Now here, notice the title is God Overthrows Economic Babylon. And I want to remind you that as we came out of Revelation 17, the discussion had to do with God overthrowing religious Babylon. Now there's three points I want to remind you of regarding God's overthrow of religious Babylon. It's the same Babylon it's just that John focuses on chapter 17 on the religious aspect of it. Chapter 18, he focuses on the economic aspect of it. Now, regarding chapter 17, three things I want you to remember. Number one, remember Babylon is a literal city. We learned that from Revelation 7, 8, 17, 18, where John said this. He says, the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Okay, so Babylon is going to be literally reestablished in the future along the Euphrates. Now, saying that it's a literal city does not deny the impact that it has over the entire world because it is also, this is number two, going to be the headquarters of worldwide idolatry, of the same attitude. Remember the same attitude that built the Tower of Babel where people said in Genesis 11:4, come, let us make a name for ourselves? That is going to be the attitude that pervades the world and gives its allegiance to Babylon. So, yes, it's a city, but it has dominion over the whole world. The third thing to remember is we learned towards the end of Revelation 17 that God is going to use the forces of Antichrist to throw down Babylon. So he's actually going to use the enemies of God to turn against other enemies of God. And we learn from that that idolatry at the end of the day turns in on itself. That left to their own devices, idolaters and pagans don't bring about a utopia. They devour and annihilate one another. They don't bring utopia. They bring hell on earth. Now today as we go into chapter 18, we look at the destruction of economic Babylon. And we're going to see that the influence of religion, false religion, brings great economic gain to the pagans. Um, as Bob has said numerous times, heresy sells. And it's going to sell big time in the 70th week of Daniel. This false religion is going to be used to profit economic Babylon. And so it's going to be a headquarters, therefore, of both spiritual and physical fornication. That's what we're going to see here today. So let's begin. We're going to see that there's going to be a total destruction of Babylon. I'm going to show you a little bit of an outline here. Revelation 17. Babylon, the headquarters of false religion, that will fall. Revelation 18, Babylon, the headquarters 
of world economics at the end, that will fall. So that's where we're covering. Now, remember, 17 and 18 are John's way of showing us in total what will happen to Babylon. Okay, it's, it's in a sense an excursus that he shows us. So remember chapter 16, you had the battle of Armageddon. Chapter 17 and 18, it's John's way of saying, oh, by the way, this is what God did to Babylon. And he fills in more details. Okay, does that make sense? Chapter 19, Jesus Christ returns. Now, let me show you an outline of chapter 18. 18 verses 1 through 3, you have an angel announcement. So the whole section of Revelation 18 is broken down by different announcements. The first announcement happens in verse 1 through 3, where you have the angel's proclamation of judgment. And then in Revelation 18, 4 through 20, you have a voice from heaven that says, Come out of her, my people. Now, I have to give you a correction. On your sheet, it says something different. I made a mistake. I accidentally copied the wrong thing into your sheet. I didn't catch it until Friday, and it had already gone out. So literally, you're going to see a voice from heaven saying to the people of God, Come out of her. And that designates that verses 4 through 20 should be seen as a separate pericope. Okay, now we'll be covering some of that here today. I'm counting, by the way, sometimes I break my messages to you according to themes. How many ideas and themes can we get into without losing sight of the big picture? But that's another pericope. Now, the final one that we'll come into next time is Revelation 18, 21 through 24, where we have another angel's announcement of judgment. And that's going to happen when, remember, you have this great millstone thrown into the sea, and Babylon will ultimately be done. So that's how the section breaks down. Again, the big lesson that we're going to learn here today is that ultimately idolatry, whether it's religious or whether it's economic, is unsustainable. And I'm deliberately choosing that term because the term is so abused today by those who are Marxists. They talk about sustainability and unsustainability. Well, the true unsustainability is life without God when he tried to be your own God. And so that's what we're going to see here from this. That's the big picture. So let's begin by looking at the first angel's announcement. Revelation 18, 1 through 2, John says this. He says, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit, and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. The dear ones, notice here at the very beginning in verse 1, John says, after these things he saw this angel coming down. Now, the these things in verse 1 refers back to what we saw in chapter 17, the destruction of religious Babylon. And it's important when we see these after these things, these types of phrases show us that, yes, John is trying to relay the things that he saw in an order. Okay, so these things were being revealed to him, but he aligns them not just chronologically, as Bob had mentioned in Acts, but theologically. So think of chapters 17 through 18 are things that would have occurred during the Battle of Armageddon and perhaps even prior, okay, that we read about in chapter 16. But here he's revealing them to make a theological point. And the theological point is that Babylon won't stand. Just as it didn't stand in the days of Isaiah when God would send the Assyrians upon them, just as it didn't stand in the days of 
the Medes and the Persians when God sent them upon them. It won't stand ultimately at the end. Now, the second thing that this reminds us when he says after these things, remember religious Babylon was addressed first, and it shows us that economic Babylon really stems or has its power from the false religious aspect of Babylon. Okay, so false religion is going to be very profitable. Babylon is going to be the headquarters of all heresy. If you want to do your yoga, where do you buy your tapes? Well, it's going to be Babylon. Okay, I'm just, I don't know what they're going to, what kind of heresy they're going to be into. But Babylon is going to be the headquarters of everything heretical, everything promiscuous, everything. Remember the old saying in the 60s and 70s, if it feels good, do it. That's going to be Babylon. That's what it's all about. Rejection against God. So that's what I want you to see is religious Babylon is really what leads to economic Babylon. Okay, decadence, gathering wealth in an immoral way. Now, by the way, that reminds me, I want to say something about wealth. We're going to talk about gathering wealth. And in the Bible, wealth in and of itself is not evil. What is evil is gaining wealth in an immoral way, rebelling against God. If you make a living as an accountant, that's certainly within your right. And God would not object for you to you becoming wealthy by being an accountant. But if you make your money by extortion or by being a thief, yes, that's immoral. Well, Babylon gains its wealth in an immoral way by deliberately selling wholesale the rejection of God and the elevation of man. And that's why it's so condemnable. Condemnable. Okay, now, the other thing I want you to see is John saw another angel. And there's some debate as to who this angel is. Some people believe that this angel that's being referred to here is a reference to Jesus Christ. Now, before you poo-poo it, let me explain why. I'll point, get my laser pointer out. The reason they would say that is because notice, first of all, that the angel has great authority. And they would say, well, that only Christ can have great authority. And notice the whole earth was illumined by his glory. So for that reason, some believe that this is a reference to Jesus Christ. Now, let me say that there are three reasons we should reject that. So what I'm going to teach you a little bit of hermeneutics here. How do we know that that interpretation is wrong? Well, first of all, we want to know how John, the author, he's the one who's inspired by the Holy Spirit. How does he typically use angelos, the term for angel? Does he use it ever to refer to Christ? In the book of Revelation, no. It always refers to a created being. So that's the first idea. When John uses angels, he always uses it to refer to angelic messengers, not Christ. So he would have to tip you off somehow by the context to show you that that's not who he's talking about. Okay? He would have to give you a better clue than just these descriptions. The second reason is notice the term another Does everyone see that? Another angel? There's two terms for another. One is alos. The other one is heteros. Now, everyone can hear from heteros. That's where we get our term heterosexual. That means the opposite sex. The opposite, you have attraction to someone of the opposite sex. Well, alos would mean the same kind, a kind, another one of the same kind. Okay, heteros, if that was used, it would be a kind that is different, okay? Another one that is different. But here's another one that is of the same kind, alos. Now, how could you ever figure that out for yourselves? You're thinking, well, I don't have logos on my, my computer. 
I don't have access to Greek terms. You know, if you got a good concordance, you could look that up. You could look that up and say, okay, what is the another here? And you would say to yourself, hey, if it's heteros, then I know, yes, it's another of a different kind. But if it's alos, it's probably another of the same kind. And that would tip you off that, yes, this is probably an angel like all the other angels have been. Yes, Paul. Yeah, when I've, now hearing about this, this other, another thing, it could either be a host of heaven or it could be uh, Christ himself or it could be something else. And uh, you're telling me then it is not Christ and yet it's not a host of heaven. Well, I would say it's one of the hosts of heaven in the sense, if you think of the hosts of heaven generically as the angelic realm, it is one of the angels. Yep. So what I'm saying is when he says angel, John uses angel elsewhere for angelic beings. Number two, he uses it also in this case to refer to another angel as to the same kind that he's been referring to. Remember, in Revelation 17, he was referring to other angels, angelic messengers. So all I'm simply pointing out is these are ways and clues that we can say he's not talking about Christ. Now, the third reason why we know here, in this particular instance, Paul, or excuse me, John must be referring to an angel is because in the immediate context of Revelation 17 and 18, that's what, it, what he's been referring to. He's been referring to angelic messengers, other created beings. So for him, all of a sudden, to interject not a created being, but the creator, would be something that would be very unexpected. Does that make sense? Yeah, Bob. Um, that brings up another question, though. Yeah. The host of heaven includes good and evil beings. Exactly. So this particular angel, are we saying this is one of the good angels? I would say so. I think the context is Yeah, that. absolutely. Okay. Yep, right. I would say so. Um, and the reason being is because he is doing the bidding of the Lord. Now, there are wicked angels who do the bidding of the Lord as well, but this seems to be willingly. This seems to be one who is sent from heaven with a great message. In fact, notice, let me put my pointer up again. I'll get it out here. It's very interesting, some of the descriptions. Notice this angel has great authority. And, Bob, you remind me, remember God uses his angelic beings as messengers and as vessels to do his will. Paul, you asked a question back Wednesday night about 1 Kings 22. And if everyone remembers that passage, there God uses a wicked angel, a demon, to entice the wicked king of Israel, Ahab, to battle. What does that passage show us? 1 Kings 22 tells us, dear ones, that God ordains the world by using the angelic realm. He uses wicked angels, and he uses good angels, okay? So when we get our angelology down, angels are comprised of two groups, good angels, wicked angels. The wicked angels are often called demons. But within the confines of demons, within that category, you have two different groups. You have those who went after women in Genesis 6. They are now locked away. But you have other demons who are still active. These are those that Jesus, for example, was casting into swine these are those who can still deceive people today. But here I think the context shows us that this is probably a good angel. And he's given great authority, meaning he has an authority that comes from the throne room of God. Also notice it says that the earth was illumined with his glory. And I want you to think about what that must be like. The world 
is illumined by his glory. Illumined is fotizo. The light from this angel is going to shine upon the planet that it's going to be like daylight. I mean, that is impressive. Now, remember what glory represents. Glory comes from the term doxa in Greek, kavoth in the Hebrew. And it has to do with two things, both the weightiness that someone deserves, that is the respect. Think about this analogy. When General Patton would come into the headquarters of the Third Army and everyone stands at attention, why do they do that? Because there's a weightiness to a third or four-star general. Well, just think about how much more weightiness there is to God. And the idea then is not that the angel in and of himself is weighty, but he is because he represents God. He's coming from the throne room. Now, the other aspect of glory that you want to keep in your mind is glory often in the New Testament represents not just the weightiness of someone, the respect that they're due, but also the visual splendor that proceeds from them. And so, for example, remember when Moses comes down from meeting with God? Didn't he shine like the sun? There was great glory that came from him. Why? Because of the one that he was with. He was with God. And so there was a weightiness to Moses, and there was also a visual splendor that proceeded from him because he'd been with God. Now you see the same thing with this angel. He's come from the throne room, and he has this message. Notice what he says. Verse 2. I'm getting rid of my pointer here before I shut my computer down. I usually end up shutting my computer down. Notice what he says. He cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. That's the message. The message that comes from the throne room is that Babylon is finished. That's the message that this angel has. Now, notice the phrase, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. That's a reference back also to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 21, where God had promised that he would throw down Babylon in the days when the Medo-Persian Empire took them over. And I want you to turn, that, turn to that passage, please, if you will. Turn to Isaiah chapter 21, verses 2 through 3. Isaiah 21, verses 2 through 3. I want you to see where else you see this phrase, fallen, fallen is Babylon. So we're going to read Isaiah 21, verses 22 through 23, and then verses 8 through 10. Now, as you're turning there, the idea of Babylon falling would have been a great blessing to the Israelites. Well, why? Well, because remember, there were three deportations at 605, 597, and finally the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple itself in 586 B.C. So Babylon in Isaiah's day also represented the enemies of God. Now, why would they be the enemies of God? Because they opposed God. They had idolatry. But they're also trying to wipe out the people of God. Fast forward to the Babylon in the book of Revelation. They oppose God. They're idolaters. And they're trying to wipe out the people of God. See, nothing changes under the sun. It's going to be recycled. So one of the keys, and by the way, we had a a fellow here who used to teach here, Ryan Habanaugh. I know some have really enjoyed his hermeneutics class. He had a great concept in hermeneutics, and that's remembering both the near and the far. The near term, in Isaiah's day, God would throw down Babylon, but that was a foreshadowing of what God would do in the far day, in the future day of the Lord, that we're reading about 
in the book of Revelation. So as we read Isaiah 21, reading about the near day, listen to what it says. Isaiah 21.1. God says through Isaiah, A harsh vision has been shown to me. The treacherous one still deals treacherously, and the destroyer still goes up. Go up, Elam. Now stop there. Elam is modern-day Iran. It's Persia. So literally, you could say, go up, Persia. Lay siege, media. I have made an end of all the groanings she, that's Babylon, has caused. For this reason, this is Isaiah, he says, my loins are full of anguish. Pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. Stop there. Now, I know I've said this probably 30 times, and some of you are ready to throw me out because I've said it. But what do labor pains remind you of? Yes, the last judgment. This is what Jesus said that the day of the Lord would be like. This is what Paul said, 1 Thessalonians 5, that while they're saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them like what? Labor pains. So do you see the connection? What happened in Isaiah's day is going to repeat itself again. What Um, verse are you on in Isaiah 21? Yeah. Which verse? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm in uh, verse... I hope I got the right passage. I'm in verse... Yeah, verse 3. I got it. Thank you. Yep. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm slow. No. <laughs> That's all right. I thought I had written down the wrong verse. Sometimes I've done that where I had the completely wrong verse I'm reading and people have no idea where I am. Let's see. Okay, so that's the idea of labor pains. And notice he says, I am so bewildered I cannot hear, so terrified I cannot see. Now, skip ahead to verse 8. Now, think of this vision. You have a lookout that's working for Israel. And this lookout is finally going to give them good news. They've been subjugated by Babylon, beat up by Babylon, pillaged by Babylon, taken into captivity by Babylon. Babylon threatened to wipe out the Davidic covenant. They took the Davidic rulers and brought them to Babylon. Everything seemed to be lost because of these pagans, Babylon. Can you imagine this good news? Notice verse 8, Then the lookout called, O Lord, I stand continually by day on the watchtower. And I'm stationed every night at my guard post. Now, behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs. And one said, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. Stop there. Can you imagine what great news that would be to the people of God in Israel who serve one God, Yahweh? And the big crux of the problem is, once they were deported to Babylon, is the Babylonian God the true God? Is Marduk the true God? Or is it Yahweh? And so not only were these people in Israel being mistreated as anyone would be in captivity to enemies, but they had a theological crisis in their own life because they said, Aren't we, don't we belong to Yahweh? Now, God told them why they were going to be brought to Babylon. It was because of their own idolatry. It was a judgment. But nonetheless, the pagan nations would mock them and say, your God isn't the true God. The God of Babylon is. So I want you to think about how this news is so great. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And yet you say it to Christians today, who we on? Oh yeah, Babylon's fallen. I tell you what, we shouldn't yawn at it. Do you long for the day that God's enemies are thrown down? Do you long for the day that Jesus Christ alone is the true God? Or do we like the silliness of going on every street corner and people saying, Well, I know that's your God, but my God would never send anyone to hell. I tell you what, I'm sick of those days. I can't wait for this message to come true. 
Fallen is Babylon. It's done. And what we're reading about in the book of Revelation is that there is a day that's coming where it's all going to be done. And God will rule. Yes, Eric. I think, I, I think actually in the ancient Near East, and you, you could correct me if this is wrong, but, but my understanding is, is that way back at that time, all of these nations, if they won in war, they attributed that to that their God was superior. Exactly So this was right. awful for the Jewish people. Nowadays, you see, no one believes in God, period. Exactly. And, and that's the problem. Well said, Eric. You know what? You're making a good example. Um, you brought it. That's perfect. Did you hear what he said? He said, when you lived in that day, if your country won in battle, it was because of your God. Right? You're exactly right. So Yahweh's the only true God. All the other gods are false gods. And so God predicts that his people are going to go into judgment because of their sin. But the pagan nations don't know his revelation. They just assume their God is stronger. And they ridicule the Israelites because of it. Let me give you an example of that, how the gods planned it with the different nations. Do you remember the story from Isaiah 37 where Sennacherib surrounds Jerusalem? Remember 185,000 Assyrians? And they're going to wipe out Jerusalem. And if they wipe out Jerusalem, remember who was there at the time, the Davidic kings. And if all the Davidic kings are wiped out, what happens to God's promise? It's over. Because Messiah is coming from David. We don't have Christmas time anymore. You might as well pack it in and go home. God's promises are done. Hezekiah, a son of David, realizes this. He takes the prayer, his prayer to the temple. He shows the words of the pagan. He confesses them before God, says, I know we're sinners, but Lord, your name's at stake. Please defend us against Sennacherib. I'm giving you the short form. The next morning, 185,000 Assyrians all dead. Do you know we have corroboration historically that that event happened? What's so interesting, in the Egyptian annals, they record that Sennacherib lost thousands and thousands of troops. In fact, it may record even the number. But you know what's interesting? Egypt, yes, says that that event happened, but they attribute it to one of their gods. Can you imagine? Isn't that, I mean, just, I'm being facetious. Isn't that wonderful? One of the Egyptian gods fought for Israel. It's absurd. But that's exactly what Eric is saying. That's their worldview. It couldn't be Yahweh to them. It had to be one of their gods. But yet, even they recognize the fact that there was a miraculous intervention. Yes, Lonnie. Um, yeah, isn't there a stone where Sennacherib yes. wrote about the battle or what? Exactly. It's a stella. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, stella. Yeah. yeah, what Sennacherib ends up writing, what he would do is he would brag. He'd brag yeah. about all the different nations yeah. that he took. Well, he comes to the point where he comes to Isaiah, or excuse me, to Israel, so Hezekiah would say, for example, on this stone, it would be a huge stone. They didn't have typewriters or pages. And he would write on the stone all of his conquests. I came to such and such a nation, and I took so much loot from them. And I came to such and such a nation. He kept doing that. Well, finally, he says, I came, and I came to Jerusalem, and I locked up Hezekiah like a bird in the cage. And all of a sudden, oh, it goes, yeah. dot, dot, dot. There's nothing after that. It's all done. There's nothing more. Why? Because Sennacherib lost his whole army, he goes home, and then he's assassinated by his own family. So you're exactly right. That also furnishes proof for what the biblical writers are saying. Well said, Lonnie. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So I'm sorry, I'm getting all fired up here, but notice the final thing I want to show you here. Verse 10, he says, Oh, my threshed people. Notice what God is saying to his people. Oh, my threshed people and my afflicted of the threshing floor. 
What I have heard from Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, I make known to you. Think about that good news. Do you know that this is written around 700 B.C.? Do you remember when the Medo-Persians actually sacked Babylon? It was 539 B.C. So a lot of the people who originally would have heard this probably never even lived to see it. And I want you to think about how long Christians have waited for Babylon to fall. And so perhaps Babylon won't fall even in our lifetime. It might. But the point is, it will happen. I remember a message that Bob gave years ago. Remember Bob was out of Habakkuk 2, the just shall live by faith? And remember Habakkuk, his whole point is that for generations, people may have to wait. The promises of God sometimes seem like they're never going to come about. But they do. One day Babylon will be thrown down. That's the great promise. In the near term, it happened in 539. And that was just a down payment of what God would do one day to Babylon in the future day of the Lord that we're reading about in the book of Revelation. That's the idea of the near and the far. The near term in the prophet's days are always foreshadowing of the ultimate, what, of what God would do in the ultimate day of the Lord. Does everyone see that, that principle? Okay. All right, now, the other thing I want to mention here is notice the desolation of Babylon. This desolation means that Babylon is going to be turned into a virtual wilderness because of the warfare that is poured out upon her. Notice it says she has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Now, notice again that demons are what? They're wicked angels. So this is going to be a desolate place. The desolate wildernesses were regarded by the Israelites as the place of the demonic. So here you have a wilderness motif Babylon is no longer going to be a thriving, idolatrous city. It's going to be reduced to a, a wilderness where the owls and these birds hang out, like vultures. Think of the, the image that you have when you see vultures. It's always in some Clint Eastwood spaghetti western and some dead guys laying out in the, in the desert and the vultures are surrounding them. They're flying. They're going to, that's the idea here. It's like a spaghetti western. Babylon's been thrown down because there was a better gunslinger. And they're, been through, they're turned into a wilderness. Now, why is this wilderness motif important? Because Babylon was organized against God, but they're turned back to chaos. The idea, remember, okay, Isaiah 24.10. Two cities. There's a city of Jerusalem or the city of chaos. Isaiah 24.10. What is the city of chaos? The city of the wilderness, the city of Tohu. It's Babylon. Genesis 1.2. God has, he's, remember the spirit is hovering over the waters and they're formless and void? Tohu, they're, they're chaotic. So God's spirit enters into creation and he takes the chaotic and he gives form to it. He creates it. He makes it beautiful. That's why the Israelites hate the wilderness. The wilderness isn't the place of beauty. It's the place of the demonic. Think about where the Israelites led to after the exodus. They're led into the wilderness. And what happens in the wilderness? They're tried in the wilderness. They're tried, as it were, by the the demonic. And do they succeed? No, they fail terribly. So much so that they need atonement. Think about what God reveals. Leviticus 16, the day of atonement. You have two goats. One goat that's going to be slain appeases the wrath of God. The other goat is the scapegoat. And where is it led? The high priest confesses all the sins of Israel 
on the scapegoat's head. And after he confesses the sins of Israel, where is the goat led out to? The wilderness. Why is it led out to the wilderness? Why? Because it's the removal of the sins of the people back to where it belongs, back to the demonic realm. Where it came from, from, exactly. Where it comes from. Think about this. Jesus, where does he confront Satan after his baptism in Matthew 4? The wilderness. He goes to the place of the demonic and he takes them head on just like Israel did. But Israel failed where God's true son, Jesus, doesn't. He's the faithful son. So what happens now is God is taking Babylon, this beautiful ornate city and all that it stands for, rebelling against God. And he's showing what it's really about. It's not a beautiful city at all. It's nothing but a place for the demons. He's reducing it back to chaos from where it really comes, a place of the demonic realm. So, I'm sorry, Bob, do you want to say anything? Well, I would just remark that from Revelation, we get an idea of what they believed. Yes. And the two places most associated with demons was the sea and the wilderness. That's right. right? Now, in uh, earlier, we have a beast which is bad. I mean, yeah. in Sunday school. Right. It comes out of the sea. Yeah. Okay. In Luke, the demons go into the pigs. Where are they? Unclean. The unclean. Yeah. Into the sea. Wow. So in the Jews' mind, that's where they came from anyhow. Right. Exactly. Okay. And so if you look at, at the end of Revelation, there is no more sea. Right. Now, to an American, that sounds horrible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we spend a lot of money in America to have a house right on the sea. Yeah, exactly. In fact, some of them build actually over the sea. Right, right. And uh, the Jews, the seas where the demons and the devil are, yeah. why would you build there? Right. Get away from it. Get, in, get, get on high ground. Get yeah. On. Okay? Yeah. So why we're learning from Eric as we're learning together... What we need to know isn't what we think about things, but what the biblical writers thought. And what were the issues the biblical writers addressed. And when we know how they thought and how they felt, we learn something. Exactly. But if we just want to have something that sounds good to us, then we won't learn anything. Right, right. Okay, so this is fantastic. And... and, uh, have you addressed the term proleptic? Oh, yeah. How that helps us? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's good that you point that out because fallen, fallen are proleptic errors. Um, yes, okay, that's, I wanted to bring that up. Yeah, no, that's good. For those of you unfamiliar with the term prolepsis, notice the term fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. That's what's called a proleptic errist. An errist in the Greek is typically something that happens in the past, but so certain is it, even though it's still in the future, it's spoken as if it's already occurred. That's called the proleptic era. Sometimes it's called the uh, prophetic. Perfect is sometimes yeah. is what it's called. Um, another place where you see this is in Romans 8.30. Remember, for those whom he predestined, he called. For those whom he called, he justified. For the, those he justified, he also then glorified. Now, you might say to yourself, well, yes, I can see that I've been predestined. That happened before the foundation of the world. And you could even say, I can see where I've been called in my life. That happened in the past or justified. But... You can't say that you've been glorified yet. And yet that's still in the aorist. It's a proleptic aorist saying it's so certain God speaks as if it's already occurred. 
That's how certain you are of being glorified. That's how certain Babylon is of being destroyed. So that's the idea of prolapsus that Bob is referring to. Yes, Eric. Just actually want to emphasize that because I've heard that in other... There's not a lot of Bible teachers that bring this stuff up, but I've heard other good quality Hebrew scholars bringing up this idea. Yes. It's an, it's an important, critical idea. It helps us to really understand what, there's, what the Bible is telling us. Exactly, Eric. And the problem is, I think sometimes as English readers, people will just read that and say, well, wait a minute, this, I don't understand the chronology. Why are they saying it this way? But when you understand it's being used as a literary device to show the certainty of God's pronouncements, then it makes sense. So, well said. Yep. Okay. So anyway, now, I think we've exhausted this slide. I'm sorry we're taking a while just to get through two verses here, but let's look at the sins of Babylon here, verse 3. It says, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. Dear ones, in verse 3, now we're seeing the reasons for God's judgment coming upon her. First of all, notice Babylon, again, is the headquarters of idolatry. In fact, she made all the nations drink from the wine of her passion of immorality. Now, one thing you want to be aware of is the term passion here literally comes from thumos, which is wrath. Okay, now here's what I want to talk to you about. The phrase when it says, all the nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her immorality... What that means is all the nations are partaking in the cup of wrath that she's going to partake in because they participated in the same deeds. In the Old Testament, God would give out a cup of wrath to his enemies. What's sad was in the Old Testament, oftentimes the enemies of God were Israel because of their idolatry. And he, because they were his people, he would discipline them. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah 51, 17. I just want you to see where this concept comes from because, again, John keeps borrowing from the Old Testament. As you turn to Isaiah 51, 17, remember there's 404 verses in the book of Revelation. I believe over 82% of them either can't contain direct quotations or allusions to the Old Testament. So that's why we keep turning to the Old. Isaiah 51, 17 Notice what God says to his people. He says, rouse yourself, rouse yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from Yahweh's hand the cup of his anger, the chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. So notice the cup there is a cup of wrath. So in Isaiah's day in the prophets, because Israel sinned, God gave them a cup of wrath because of their idolatry. Fast forward to the 70th week of Daniel. This is the last seven years. That's what we're reading about in Revelation. God does a reversal where what he used to pour upon Israel, the cup of wrath, now he's going to take it and pour it upon the nations. And what's he going to do with Israel? Well, he's going to bring them to messianic salvation, to faith. All Israel will be saved, as Paul says in Romans eleven twenty six. So this is part of this idea of reversal that we see. That what God used to do to Israel, now he's going to do to Babylon in the Goim, the nations, the Gentiles, because of their immorality and unbelief. So that's the idea of passion. It literally has to do with wrath. Now, notice what Babylon was engaged in. First of all, it was immorality. The term there is the term pornea. It's where we get our term for pornography. And here's what I want to suggest to you. This idea of pornea is both spiritual and physical. In other words... There is a spiritual adultery that the world is engaged in. 
where they're going after other gods other than the true God. But this, because people have other gods, ironically, they end up living that way physically where they will not be faithful to their one spouse and they go after other partners. Okay? So now I want to talk about the physical idea first, the idea of physical promiscuity. I want to take you back to the idea of the garden. Do you remember in the garden, Adam and Eve sin? And after they sin, do you remember that they realize that they're naked? Well, then God covers them, and he kills an animal to do it. It's the first death in the Bible, as it were. And so you have this foreshadowing of atonement as he covers them in the garments of the animal. But the people are no longer naked. They're clothed. But the idea of when they're naked is they're ashamed. In a sense, marriage between one man and one woman is the only safe place for humanity to be naked again. And the reason I say that is I want you to think about the gravitas of what marriage is. When a person cheats on their spouse, what they've done is they've seen everything their partner is. Someone who's made in the image of God, they know everything about the person emotionally and physically. And when they're cheating on that person... The one safe place where it's okay to be naked again as a person, a human being, the person who cheats on their spouse is saying, you're not good enough, I'm going for another person. Can you imagine how damaging that is? That's why God ordained marriage. It's the safe place for a man and woman to be naked again. And that's why, see, God isn't being mean-spirited by confining the sexual union between one man and one woman. He's actually protecting human beings made in the image of God. But you see, when you live for Babylon, you don't care about other human beings made in the image of God because you have your own God, a God that doesn't care about human beings. You have either yourself or some other pagan God as an idolater, and the God that you come up with as a pagan isn't the true living God of Israel. He's not the Holy One of Israel who cares for people. So that's the seriousness of marriage. That's why it's one man, one woman, and anything outside of that dishonors God, the creator, and ends up hurting people who are made in the image of God. Okay, now, with that, that's the physical pornea. But it all is a direct result, as I said, of the spiritual pornea, the idea of going after other gods. So think of it this way. What's the first commandment? Thou shall have no other gods besides me. What's your commitment in marriage? I shall have no other men or women besides you. Do you see how they relate? Pagans who reject the one true God reject their one spouse. That's the way it is. So that's what really creates all the problems in Babylon. That's why they act the way they do. If they're spiritual adulterers, you end up being physical adulterers oftentimes that's the issue so that's why it says they were committing acts of immorality see that again in purple it's mentioned twice and it says and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality now the term sensuality some versions that you'll have render this like greed or um, wealth things like that But I think, again, this is probably a sexual term. It's like living for promiscuity. It's a very difficult term because it's so rare. Um, Let me give you, in fact, a definition. This is from 
Lonida, again, a Greek lexicon that tells you what the Greek means. Listen to what they say. They define this term this way. It's strainiao. It's to live sensually by gratifying the senses with sexual immorality, to live sensually, to live intemperately, to have lust and sensual living. That's, again, what defines Babylon. Why? Because they give up the true God, they give up their spouse. That's the idea. Now, one passage I want to turn to that kind of shows us how this term, strainiao, or I'm sorry, I got to read it from the Greek, strainiao means, turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy 5, 11 through 12. The reason I'm doing this is I want you to see how this term is used elsewhere for sexual immorality. 1 Timothy 5, 11 through 12. We're going to see the same term, which is what a prefix put on it. Kata strainiao. 1 Timothy 5, 11 through 12. Now remember here, Paul is talking about who should be given funds and who should be on the list of the widows. In 1 Timothy 5, 11 through 12, Paul says this, but refuse to put younger widows on the list. For when they feel sensual desires, there's kata strino, or strainiao, When they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. Now, how many of you have versions that say pledge? Quite a few. Does anyone have one that says faith? So, Okay, good. Faith is probably a bender rendering here. The term is actually in the Greek pistis, where we get our term faith. So the term pledge, and that's what I have, and I think it's I have the New American Standard here, that's more of an interpretation, I think, that it is a translation. Now, here's why. What the translator is doing is saying this, this must be a pledge where a woman had made a pledge to be celibate, and she's violating that pledge. Or the, the fear is because she's single and young, she's going to violate the pledge of celibacy. That is not what Paul's concerned with. What Paul is concerned with, what the better reading is, is that a younger widow should not be put on the list because the risk is that she will go after a younger man and she will be overcome by her desires. The risk is that she will then marry an unbeliever and be led astray, and therefore she's not compromising a pledge of celibacy. After all, Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.14 that the younger widow should be married. Well, if he's telling them that they should be married, well, they couldn't have made a pledge for celibacy. That would be ridiculous. So a pledge of celibacy has nothing to do with this text. The issue is this woman who is younger may be tempted to go marry an unbeliever and be led away from the faith. That's the idea. But here's the point. It shows you that this term that we see in Revelation 18.3 really is a sexual one. It doesn't have to necessarily to do with wealth. Now, why am I laboring that point? The point is wealth in and of itself is not evil. The problem is Babylon got their wealth through sexual promiscuity. That's how it gets it. It gets it through peddling immorality and rebellion against God. Now, I need to say that because there are people who are wealthy and they are not condemned by God. You see that uh, Lydia was very wealthy. She wasn't condemned by God. In fact, she used her resources for the king and his kingdom. But here, Babylon is given much wealth and the more wealth that they accrue, the more they simply use it to rebel against God, say, I have no need of them, we'll live any way we want, and we'll have our own morality. Boy, it sounds an awful lot like what you see today.
right? Dear brothers and sisters, that's the issue that's going on. Now, let me bring up this issue of sustainability. I'm using that term because it's a buzzword in our, our life today. Sustainability to the Marxist left, and I call it the Marxist left in America because it is a religious movement. What they believe sustainability has to do with is protecting you from destroying the planet. Anyone ever realize that you, when you pick up your bottled water, if the cap isn't on and it's full and you press it, the water goes all over you now? Because the plastic is so thin. Why? Because they're going to save the world one bottle at a time. That's sustainability to the Marxist left. And yet they will live in rebellion against God. And what I'm showing you from this text is ultimately living apart from God and his rule is unsustainable. That's the real unsustainability that the world must be worried about. Yes, I'm, you know, if you want to recycle, I'm not, you know, feel free. The, the Lord likes recyclers and the non-recyclers. I always tell my wife, she gets mad at me. I'm not, uh, she, uh, she, she, gets, she gets after me. Hey, you got to put that in there. And I say, it all goes in the hole. And, uh, but anyway, I know, I'm, I'm sorry. Yes, Eric. Just on a, on, a high, on a kind of a humorous note, like what we're on right now, I heard the other day that uh, I think it was 25 years ago that uh, this, this, uh, this uh, climate guru, I think his name is Hansen, okay. he predicted 25 years ago that by 2018, which is what we're approaching, that the Arctic ice caps would have fully melted and that Manhattan would be underwater. So watch out, okay? It's, it's, we're not quite there. <laughs> not quite there. You know what's interesting? Um, I know this is purely anecdotal. Um, some years ago, uh, thank you, it's an it's a excellent analogy or example. Some years ago, I was down in uh, Disney World, and we're waiting for a ride that you, they drive you around in these canals to get you to different places. And the tugboat driver, I could tell he's a retired fellow just doing it kind of as a, a kind of a hobby job and enjoying it. He's a little tugboat captain. Well, I was talking to him, and he says, you know, um, we introduced ourselves, and he says, Eric, it's so funny, people who believe in global warming, he says, you know, in the last 30 years, the freezing level in the United States keeps going further and further south to the point where the orange growers are getting more and more concerned about their crops freezing. He said, that never happened 60, 70 years ago. And he says, you would think that if global warming were true, that that would not be possible. I remember in the 1990s, it was 1996, the year I was married, I was helping my brother load a wood box. It was 35 below zero. Now, I know there have been a lot of carbon emissions prior to that. And what I'm thinking to myself, 35 below zero, that isn't cold enough? I mean, what does it have to be for? I mean, it's ridiculous just at the, just the casual observance. I was a flight instructor for years, and I would ask left, the left when I debate them because they're the people of science. I ask them simply, tell me how a low-pressure system forms a cloud. Tell me about the latent heat of condensation within the mature form of a thunderstorm the mature stage of a thunderstorm. These people are clueless. They don't even know how clouds form. And yet they're absolutely convinced that the world is unsustainable because of global warming. Bob, tell them about your article that you wrote, and, of course, the Star and Tribune refused to print it. Oh, I just did some work with science, that my roots are in science. Exactly. And I have a grandson who's a brilliant science student. And I wrote a, an essay proving that we cannot accurately predict future climate because of irreducible complexity. And it has to do with differential calculus variables that actually influence one another and it becomes so complex so quickly 
and we're only talking about known variables right. that it's impossible to predict. And I've been published by the Star and Trib off and on over the years. Yeah. One time they gave me a half of the editorial page of the where I defended creation yeah. against an atheist who had written in. They wouldn't they wouldn't even do anything, nothing. Right. I rewrote it, made it better. Still wouldn't publish it. Wow. They don't care because it's a religion. Exactly. It's not science. Let me tell you about the religious version. In 1972, when I was a new Christian, a prophetess came from Florida prophesying in the name of the Lord that Florida was going to go under water within 20 years, (laughs) most of Florida. And it just happened that she had bought up a bunch of land on high ground in northern Florida, and God was telling Christians to gather together uh, on this high ground so it would prove how smart they were when the rest of the Florida went underwater. Now, that was 72. Might as well learn something from us older folks. (laughs) This is really simple. No one knows the future but the Lord. Amen. Amen. And what we know about the future from the Lord is in the Bible. Yeah. There's no secret. The climate is too complex. Nobody knows what it's going to do. And the real issue, and you're right on. You should get the student reading award, oh, by the way, for free coffee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You get it. Yeah. First to put a word. Yeah. Um, the world is opposed to the biblical worldview in every way. Okay? God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Amen. The world says that's evil. Mm-hmm. People need to die. It's evil if you do what God said. Uh, carbon dioxide is not air pollution. Right. That's very simple. I just read in a paper. I still read the liberal paper. I want to know what they're saying. Yeah. Even if they won't publish me. We've had year after year after year of record food harvest worldwide. Years of record food harvest. There are more. In fact, there was an article about never have we had so much childhood obesity worldwide. (laughs) The wheat harvest, record. Corn harvest, record. Grain harvest, record. The whole world's being fed. Why do they eat that? Because be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. If people aren't starving to death, carbon dioxide helps things grow. Right, right, amen. It, That's right. And, you know, it drives me nuts. Yeah. I had a therapist who wouldn't even ever help me anymore because I told her driving your car to work won't change the climate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the end of me. Well, guess what? Driving your car to work won't change the climate. Yeah, amen. Well said, amen. Buddy. Well said, Bob. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm sorry. LeVon, go ahead. And I just want to add, um, it's God who created this world, and amen. it is God who takes care of it, and yes. there's nothing. His will is going to be done. And after um, the flood, he promised, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, Winter and summer and day and night shall not cease. Amen. Amen. Well said, Levon. Yes. Free coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm thinking of um, Colossians 1. Not only does Christ create all things, but...
by him all things hold together. He's the sustainer. That's why, I, you know what? You and I, a lot of the world is worried about a comet coming and smacking us. You and I with a correct biblical worldview, we don't have to. There's not one random molecule in the universe. We can trust that Jesus Christ is the sustainer, not just the creator. And so you're right. All of this is going to a divinely appointed end, just as he had decreed it. Well said, great reading, LeVon. I'm sorry, there was somebody else. Yes, Tom. Uh, and, you know, it all goes along with the, um, you know, the, the agenda, really, the political yeah. agenda, yeah. which is a one-world government. And uh, in the uh, uh, Agenda 21, which was all based upon that, is world socialism. Yes. And uh, it also is something that, uh, as you look at, um, you know, that, it's also based on population. Yes. So everything is tied back to it's the people. They always talk about that, that the people are the ones that are causing, you know, the world, which in turn ends up wanting to have less people. Yeah, And exactly. that's really, the, you know, where it, it comes into play is the one world government. Well said. And it's, a, and it's the government. You know, the, I, I like uh, the, the analogy that the green movement and the Save the Earth movement is likened to a watermelon. It's green on the outside, but it's really communist red on the end. And that's what it's about. Yeah, 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 it is. It's the communist movement. Amen. Yeah. I'm sorry, Craig, go ahead. I just wanted to bring up one thing on, you know, this belief that the world is going to flood due to global warming. Yeah. Did not God say in Genesis chapter 8 that he would never flood the world again? So exactly. basically what it comes down to is that these people, neither one, either don't know the promises of God or number two, don't believe in them. Yes. Well said, Craig. Yeah, thank you. Very good. Excellent. One last anecdotal uh, bit of information here. Yeah. I don't know if anyone else, I'm sure someone else heard this too, but uh, just this last week, um, there was a news report that NASA has they believe they've discovered, just discovered that there's like molten, uh, um, a heated layer coming up underneath the Arctic Circle. And they believe that that could very well be what's causing the polar ice cap to melt. This is just a new discovery that they're believing. So here we have all this, you know, yeah. carbon dioxide, we're global warming. And now, oops, well, there just might be this Molten yeah. stuff that's rising up underneath yeah. that's causing the polar ice cap to melt. So very interesting, Mike. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. We're gonna we're gonna stop it right here. Thank you for the great discussion. Um, we'll continue on through these verses. I'm sorry. Did somebody? Did you have one, Christy? Have people bring their hand out back next week. Yeah. Make sure you bring. That's a good point. Yeah. Bring your handouts next week. They won't have to print more. But uh, we'll just continue on and we'll get through chapter 18. How exciting! I'm gonna. Again, when we get to chapter 19, Jesus Christ is going to return. So we're working our way there. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you've not left us in darkness without revelation to know who you are and what you require of us. We do pray for our pagan neighbors, Lord, that we would be bold with the gospel for their sake, that you would regenerate their hearts, Lord, that you would take them out of this world, that you would bring them away from Babylon and to serve you. Um, Lord, I do pray that you would sustain my brothers and sisters here as the world turns against us and as it worships its own rather than you, the true creator. We pray, Lord, for sustenance. We pray for Bob and his voice. We thank you for him. We pray for the sermon today and our worship that it be pleasing to you. We pray that you give us ears to hear and minds to understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen.